in the name of God who brings us through constriction into a fuller life. Amen. When I was 18 years old, I set off from my home in Louisiana for college in Virginia, two days away by train. Two of my best friends were on the train with me, heading for a different women's college in Virginia, but I hardly spoke to them. I was almost rude. Nothing could get me there fast enough, away from my noisy, happy, close-knit family of three brothers and a sister that suddenly I could hardly wait to leave behind. I was hungry for experience, thirsty for knowledge gained in a particular kind of way, clean and direct as an arrow, slicing through my settled, familiar world to a bigger reality I knew existed but couldn't access on my own. And everything turned out just as I had hoped. I made new friends quickly, odd friends, nothing like the ones I'd known at home. I didn't search them out. They were just the people that fate put next to me. I began to see everything from a different point of view. My intellectual horizons exploded. I had never felt so alive. By Christmas time, I was having stomach aches so frequent and severe I was often doubled up in pain. My father, who was a great athlete, as I am not, and who tended to believe that the cure for cancer was sleeping with the windows open, or that at the minimum a good hard game of tennis, immediately sized up the situation and said that what I needed was exercise. I should do an hour of fairly vigorous exercise every day. And I said, because almost angrily, which was something new for me because I adored my father, you haven't been listening. I had just told him that I got up at 7 for breakfast, had all 8 o'clock classes, barely had time to do my reading and bolt down my meals, was in the library right after dinner and stayed till it closed at 10 o'clock, whereupon I would fall into bed exhausted just as the world around me came suddenly to life with dorm meetings, shouts of laughter, and the ringing of the telephone at the other end of the hall. What kind of people had meetings that began at 10 o'clock? My father simply repeated what he'd said, an hour of exercise a day, and added, if you don't agree, you're not going back after Christmas. This was really strong from my father, who was pretty much of a pushover where my sister and I were concerned. I agreed, of course. I had to, because no matter how the prospect of exercise rose like an impossible barrier in front of me, I wanted what I had gotten a glimpse of on the other side. Well, you know the end of the story, of course. The fact that I managed for the rest of that winter and spring to fit a whole hour of exercise into my crowded and stressful day won't be particularly surprising in the world we live in now when people routinely get up and run or go to the gym at 5.30 in the morning. But this was the 1960s in the pre-air-conditioned South, and the only real exercise I'd ever gotten was water skiing in the summer when it was too hot to do anything else. The promise I made to my father that Christmas was, in a way, my first taste of real 
discipline, of doing something not because I chose to, but because someone I trusted, someone who knew me well and wanted the best for me, convinced me that it was the right thing to do, or in this case, made me do it. Physical discipline, moral discipline, fiscal discipline, they all have a strong whiff of imposition about them, don't they? A restriction of our natural pleasures. And yet, time and again, if we agree to submit to them, they lead us through what seems to be a harsh and narrow place, a place of clinging to what we already know or what we think we need, and out on the other side into something much, much bigger than we had known before. Last Sunday's New York Times had an article on the front page that made pretty much the same point. It described a, pro a, a program called Youth Challenge that's being run by the National Guard to take young people who've been on the verge of getting into trouble and put them through a grueling physical and educational program. One of the recent graduates was pictured on, there on the front page, a young black man named Dante Dungy. Dante is one of 200 or so young people who had just graduated from one of these camps in Georgia. For six weeks, he got up at 4.30 in the morning, made his bunk with neat corners, and sweated through an hour of calisthenics or running. He has worn a uniform, marched in step with his platoon to the dining hall, completed 50 hours of community service, and spent long hours studying for the GED that will open the door to college or career for many dropouts. There were no cigarettes or alcohol anywhere. And like each of the other young people in the program, Dante has a personally selected adult mentor in his hometown who will advise him over the year ahead. He now hopes to join the Air Force. It was all so encouraging and hopeful. I felt a surge of optimism in reading the article that I haven't been feeling much lately. But the reason I read it in the first place, what made me stop and smile, was the line under his picture. It quoted Dante as saying, it feels good to have discipline. You could see it on his face that he'd already begun to internalize in his body, mind, and spirit the connection that exists between discipline and this larger freedom. Not discipline as a misery-making dead end, but a gateway, an opening of grace from one realm of understanding into another. There's a story about Father Thomas Keating, the Trappist monk and the founder of the Centering Prayer movement in this country, who as a young man, before he went into the monastery, could drink anybody under the table. And after he went into the monastery, he could fast anybody under the table. His abbot, who already knew him better than he knew himself, wisely gave him the discipline for Lent of putting on 10 pounds. So to his great humiliation, he was obliged to sit there and eat ice cream sundaes while his fellow novices were getting only thin soup. His was a fast from pride. Spiritual discipline like this is actually something that's available to us all. 
whether in a monastery or not. It's not something vague or mystical, but can be as simple as giving something up for a while, just to make our lives simpler or to keep our hearts open, or taking something on that benefits others. But very frequently, it will have this same shape of constriction leading to spaciousness, of the ego becoming less in order for the spirit to become more. I know this kind of language may seem obscure to some of us, but I can assure you, you have only to meet Thomas Keating, a big, tall guy with a fantastic sense of humor who just celebrated his 86th birthday, to recognize in him a lightness and easiness of spirit and presence, a freedom from the old compulsions that seems, in my experience, to be one of the side effects of real holiness. Clearly, over his long lifetime, he's taken upon himself many different forms of discipline, whether of speech or fasting or simply the motion of opening his heart again and again to God in prayer that has brought him through the limitations of his previous personality into a place of fullness and, yes, pleasure that he might never have known without it. It's this same experience, the experience of a new access to joy and freedom on the other side of what seems to be a barrier that the Apostle Paul is trying to describe to the young church at Corinth in the lesson that Tiana just read. It's this same contradiction, this looking at things upside down and inside out. For has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, he asks them, meaning everything we think we know about ourselves, all the things we're absolutely certain we need and can't survive without. Knowing them as he does, you can almost feel his intensity between the lines trying to make his point. Aware of their strengths and weaknesses, Paul wants them to try this new way of being, this discipline, if you will, of trusting ourselves to God's will for our continuing fullness and growth. He wants them to see for themselves, like my father wanted me to, wanted me to see for myself, or Thomas's abbot wanted him to see, or Dante's drill instructor wanted him to see and experience for himself, that although the circumstances of our lives may not make sense at any given moment, if we step forward into faith, we will come to find that it is reliable and true, that the power of God and the wisdom of God can actually be found in this man, Jesus, who died and yet who lives, that all this can be trusted, that it can hold us up. Now, as we move forward into the season of Lent, may we too step forward in faith and true discipline, trusting that God, who knows us better than we know ourselves, also wills our pleasure and our true satisfaction in him.
Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot org. We wish you God's peace and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.